Coming to you live from the Emerald City, welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. Join us for this all-access pass backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to incredible guests who journey with us as we dive deep into the world of venues, tours, festivals, and everything in between. Grab your laminate and meet us in Venueland. Today's adventure has us checking in with the CEO of New Rising Sun, producers of the iconic Bumbershoot Arts and Music Festival, who's celebrating 50 years, which is great. Uh, plus, uh, we're going to talk about his time with Bill Graham Presents, uh, time at the Fillmore, uh, TV, part of the TV music team is Sony, uh, Sony Pictures. So much cool stuff. Uh, please welcome our guest today, Joe Paganelli. Yeah. Joe, you, one of my favorite quotes from you right off the bat, let's just talk about this. You've said you have an involuntary propensity for being in the right place at the right time. What does that mean? Oh, man. Um, first of all, can you, can you hear me out there? Okay, great. Uh, We'll have to deal with like half of my hearings blown out from the you know concert career that started in 1993. So I'll, I'll try to hang in there. We're as all best there I with can. you. Uh, yeah, I was looking. I was looking back at uh, you know how did I get here kind of moment, and I was like, I don't know what's fucking. And I I kind of was just scanning through some of the milestones and just felt really uh, fortunate because I was like, I remember driving by Sony Pictures and looking at the movie lot and being like, holy shit, that's a real movie lot. Like, uh, you know, huge movies. But I ended up working there, right? And in San Francisco, if you wanted to be in the concert business, uh, Bill Graham started his career in the 1960s and had all the biggest bands performing and was the first promoter to do, you know, stadium tours and major shows and I and I ended up there. And, and so in each instance, I kind of fell over through the back garden wall but um, I, I don't look at it as any particular talent that I have, but I'm just kind of like, wow, I'm really fortunate to have been associated with these larger brand structures, and there's so much to learn at those. You, get, you gain mentors and you have experiences, uh, but they were mostly large companies. It wasn't, you know, it hasn't been like a slew of startups. No. Sounds like you're a little clairvoyant. Like, have you have you imagined us all becoming billionaires this afternoon? <laughs> Fingers I, crossed. I, yeah, that's right. I, already, I saw yeah, this is going to be this podcast is rising to number one. <laughs> uh, okay, so New Rising Sun. Let's talk about that. What is New Rising Sun? And then talk to us about your involvement with Bombershoot. Sure. So. Um, New Rising Sun is a B Corp. You've probably heard of that term before. It's in, in Washington. They call it a Washington Social Purpose Corporation. Uh, it's, a, it's a startup company, and myself and two other uh, concert promoter, visual art producers, we knew that Bumbershoot was going to be up for uh, RFP, Request for Proposal, through the city of Seattle. So I was watching the progress of the festival for a number of years. I've only been in Seattle six years, so I'm not the guy that is in the Wayback Machine with Bumbershoot, and hey, I've been attending for 30 years. I see you probably have seen a number of Bumbershoots 2012 there. Wearing it proud, thank you. Um, but uh, when it came up, I, I knew that I would need some boots on the ground and some, some experience and some, some heavy hitters, so I invited Steven Severin who uh, has produced concerts in every room in Seattle for many years, and Greg Lundgren, who is an established visual art curator. Uh, he's got a great show called Out of Sight, which was a Pacific Northwest contemporary of visual art, and we put a proposal in to the city of Seattle that was wrapped around uh, a workforce development program to remove barriers 
for youths age 17 to 25 from marginalized communities focusing on LGB uh, as well as BIPOC. And we knew we needed to tell a big enough story that just saying, hey, Bumbershoot's back and we wanna make a bunch of money, that's never gonna work and it's not how Seattle wants to see Bumbershoot, we don't think. So we decided to find a mission that we thought was appropriate for the times. Mind you, this was happening during COVID. So we're out there, <laughs> we're not Live Nation, we're not AEG, we don't have $500 million from Saudi Arabia as an investment. Uh, we had zero yeah. and we put in a proposal that really struck uh, with the city as being something that was uniquely quintessentially Bumbershoot, which is that we can train the next generation of arts and music producers. And that's needed right now. Uh, people are needed, community is needed. And we said, my friend Rob Thomas, uh, he ran the Fillmore Denver when I was running the Fillmore San Francisco, so I knew him. He runs AEG here in Pacific Northwest. And when they set Bumbershoot down and said, you know, we're, we're out, we're gonna step back from this. I said, hey, what happened? Tell me like the one thing. And he said, you know, if I knew that Bumbershoot was a community engagement play and not, you know, a, a, a large festival engagement strategy, I would have done everything different. And it just it hit me like a wall of bricks. And I said, boom, I grabbed that, put it up here and evolved everything from that notion. Because basically Rob was telling me this was the biggest pain. This, you know, we, sure. this was, you know, this is a, an observation he's making that was at the core of everything that was happening with Bumbershoot at that time. So, you know, that's why we decided we need, we need a, a workforce development program and a great team of people. So let's go out to the community and engage Seattle's influential business and community leaders and ask them to actually be a part of the festival, to get behind it and support the education program. And it's working out great. And it's all about that intention too. Like that's come up on so many of the uh, panels and sessions we've had this week at the conference where not just rolling it out there and say, you know, here, buy your tickets and support us. And like you said, collecting a check on the promoter side, but you know, being really intentional and also aware of the impact you have as a company. It's more than just, you know, giving people a good time at an event, but it's exposing them to art. You know, it is this huge, so many of these festivals now are, they really are these art exhibits almost as much as they are about the music. It's like you're seeing the scale of these plexi things with lasers shooting and, uh, you know, so it, I think having that intention and understanding that it's beyond the music and knowing your market, you know, you know, if you maybe go to another city, maybe it's less received, but, you know, understanding that Seattle, it's like, this is what they want. This is what they're looking for going forward. You know, they don't want to just recycle what was done in the past. It's true. I think a, a new model for festival is, is developing on two different levels. Uh, it was probably 2012 when, a friend called me up in Los Angeles and said, hey, let's go to this warehouse. There's this art show thing happening. And I was like, eh, don't have anything to do today. Let's go check it out. And as we approached the, the warehouse, you could see thousands of people walking towards it. And it was Banksy's famous Los Angeles warehouse show oh, wow. with the pink elephant. He, they painted an elephant and, and Banksy hadn't yet landed with full mainstream force. And so that always stuck with me. And, uh, you know, Bumbershoot takes place at Seattle Center. The city's a great partner. And That's that, out by the Space Needle for those folks who don't know, right? So, so right what, where, where do you do this? It's, it's Seattle Center is a 74-acre campus. It has the Space Needle. It's got Climate Pledge Arena. It's got McCaw Hall. It's got KXP. It's a really fantastic uh, 
it's a fantastic footprint with a lot of Seattle's community-engaged organizations. It has Seattle Opera. It has Pacific Northwest Ballet. There's a lot of power there going on. But it also looks like a college campus and how many major festivals take place and succeed on a college campus. It's a beautiful area. You've got to be careful with that, right? we, we got to be careful. Yeah. Don't set any fires, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging place to have a festival, but it's also in the core of Seattle's uptown, close to downtown locations. So a lot of festivals that are surviving, there's been festival saturation, right? A lot of festivals go up, a lot of them come down, not a lot of them remain. You know, one of the things that I love that you're doing with Bumbershoot is really engaging the community. And as so many people in this room have been tasked by their general managers where they're building up, how, what else can we do? What else can we do to create a festival or, or something local or create some new event? And the, the amount of time that goes, you know, because we know how to deal with John Mayer when he comes to town, right? We know how to deal with, you know, uh, anybody, the big artists. But when you're dealing with some of these local folks, it can actually be a lot more demanding of your time and your energy. So how are you, what does your team do then really to, number one, embrace the community, and number two, be able to manage all those different personalities coming in from all over the place? Uh, I'm not gonna say we take a lot of drugs. <laughs> That's not the right answer. <laughs> uh, we take, we drink a lot of uh, energy drinks. It's it's a huge challenge. It's it's a lot easier to book those shows where it's a defined space with a stage and you have a proper production manager and tour manager. Everybody knows what the deal is. But uh, see, Bumbershoot's really engaging. Our our goal is to expand the definition of what you think an artist is. So nail artists who create these cool art you know on fingernails like that's an artist too right and they'll be there and we have a, a geodesic domes that will have witches performing you know ritualistic experiences and that's artists too and people use chainsaws to carve uh, ice blocks or or you know wood blocks into art that's artists too and uh, there's so many different definitions of artists that don't get the acknowledgement in the mainstream so greg's really going after it and we're trying to level out I don't know if you guys went, but I, I went to Lollapalooza in 1996, where it was like the Fred Rose sideshow circus. Yes, you know, absolutely. People hanging irons from their nipple. You know, like <laughs> weird stuff. Really weird on, stuff, man. man. Yeah. It was pretty wild. And you're walking around on the concourse going, holy shit, like what is this going on? No one had ever seen stuff on the concourse before, right? It was Perry Farrell and Jane's Addiction and Ice-T and Susie and the Banshees are on the main stage. But you're out there way out on the concourse seeing this crazy art thing that is blowing your mind and we want to bring that that is in the dna of bumbershoot in seattle it's and we use the word weird freak flag whatever you want but we're gonna try to make it so that you're standing on the couch you're like i don't know whether to go see band of horses or whether to watch this cat circus but i'm pretty conflicted <laughs> why not do both why not do both <laughs> why not do both <laughs> Uh, Joe, obviously, so you know you've got you got the big role as CEO, but it wasn't you know uh, uh, you know an instant thing, an instant success for you. I know in '93 you kind of got that entry into the entertainment world that Bill Graham presents, but let's go back to 1992, Joe Paganelli, right? Who, who's Joe in 1992? Joe's uh, getting thrown out of college and washing out of a science program <laughs> in Philadelphia. So it's really a great question, and I'm glad you asked it because with our workforce development, one of our one of our um, initiatives that we do with the cohort, you know, 16 kids come from very various backgrounds and they're sitting there going like, how do I get from here to producing a major festival or being in the concert business? And we call it demystifying the path to success. And so uh, what I like to share is I would never have found myself at the Fillmore if I hadn't gotten thrown out of college for 
washing out of a science program, right? So uh, I, I moved to, set to California. I didn't research it. I landed in Sacramento. I was like, where's the ocean? I thought this is California. <laughs> like, it didn't look like what I thought California should look like. I, I did, a, did a couple years of college and started seeing more concerts. And one day I woke up and I said, music seems like it's the most important thing to me. And my brother was working in politics for Barbara Boxer, who was a senator in California. And he said, I think you should meet somebody. And I went out to meet this lawyer who was uh, working for a ticket company. I didn't know anything about it, didn't do my research. I showed up, they ushered me into the office and there's this wizened you know, man sitting behind this gigantic lawyer's desk with nothing on it but a pen and a little piece of paper. You know, the, the most powerful people have nothing on their desk. Right? They don't do anything. But, uh, or they do, they do everything, but somebody does it for them. It's all delegation, yeah. yeah, delegation. And his, his, uh, his pants were up kind of here, and I saw those strappy things that connect a person's socks to their boxers. I was like, holy shit, like, what is... <laughs> What is going on? But I sat down and he's like, tell me your story. And I was like, nothing came out of my mouth. I had no chops, no story, didn't know how to present myself, didn't know how to articulate a big... And this is why I think everybody should get a job in sales or marketing at some point. You've got to practice, fail, tell stories, and learn how to articulate something that people want to want to get behind and the power of word and story can compel people to give millions of dollars or help you shape a program or help you change a city. So he said, what's your story? I didn't have one. He tried a few more times. Finally, he's like, I'm kind of giving up. Can you give me something here? And I was like, I want to be in the music industry. So he's like, I think there might be a job at Bill Graham Presents in the nightclub division. And I was like, nightclub, like, does that mean disco? Like, what, is, you know, what is, exactly what does that You're mean? You're seeing this guy with the, with the socks, and you're like, what's his vision of a nightclub? <laughs> what are we doing? He, what are we doing here? <laughs> he's just like, this kid's not going to make it. But um, <laughs> he, he put in a good word for me, and I tried out. Uh, they had me audition for an assistant, office assistant job, and when I got there, I wore a suit. I, wore, I rode the mission bus. I'm sweating. It's summer. It's, it's, it's usually a little cooler in San Francisco, but I'm sweating because of the opportunity. I show up. It's a no-name building. There's nothing on it. You'd never know that stars go there, that the biggest concerts have been produced there. Amnesty International produced there. Bill was a producer of Live Aid. Um, I go in the bottom. There's a guy who looks like he's a professional wrestler sitting there in an empty room. I'm like, oh, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> he's like, nope. He's like, go upstairs. Like, it's all hidden so that no one knows how to get in. This is in the 90s. I go upstairs, and it's like if the Rolling Stones opened a museum or a bank, this is what Bill Graham Presents looks like. It's just lined with Every concert poster, every black and white picture, Janice, Jerry, Miles Davis, The Grateful Dead, Steve Winwood, uh, anybody you can think, Peter Frampton on a stage with 50,000 people surrounding him where he looks like this big and the crowd is gigantic. And you're just like, oh shit, I'm fucked. You're just like, <laughs> like, this is like you've landed in the promised yeah. land and they must, they, this is what Bill called the special forces of rock and roll. They could produce any concert anywhere on a mountaintop, in an arena, wherever. And back, you know, Bill started that in the 70s. So I tried out for this job and they basically sat me down and they gave me a little rubber thing that had A through Z on it. And they stepped in front of me and they said, file these 500 pieces of paper and answer that phone. And I'd never answered a phone professionally. And now I have enormous respect for people who answer phones professionally because there's five lines and I fucked every one of them up every time. <laughs> you know, I got the wrong person's name and the person it was for, I got that screwed up. And at the end of it, they're like, yeah, you didn't do that well. 
<laughs> and I was indignant because I was like a college graduate and I'm trying out for yeah, a job right, to answer the phone. Like, how could this be? It just shows how messed up my head was. I didn't know anything about so the So how do you get in anyway, though, despite that? How do you, what was it, what was it the turn that? I think the Barbara Boxer thing helped a little bit. <laughs> it's just kind of, they're like, oh, well, like, a, you know, that guy I was telling you about actually was the lawyer who created Ticketron which is the predecessor before Ticketmaster. Yeah. He was in charge of the ticket business from his little big, from his big desk right there. And he had, you know, Bill Graham, uh, is it Michael Rosen? Who was the uh, Tower Records guy? Uh, the, you know, these big hit hitters in the business decided that ticketing was going to be a thing, right? Back imagine before that. that, you just showed up, imagine that. Boy, were they wrong. Yeah, right? they're way Jeez. off. So they created the, a ticketing service, Bay Area Seating Service, Ticketron, uh, ticketing's huge. It's, it's the first touch with the customer. And what I learned at Bill Graham Presents and kind of why I'm telling this roundabout story was that some of the things when you land at a big institution, if you keep your ears open and your eyes wide and you just try to consume all the information you can, was that Bill's philosophy was, I try to think, this was back in the 70s where they didn't think the way we do today. He said, they said, Bill, how did you become so successful? How did you become the most popular, famous concert promoter in in the world in the business. And he said, I try to think of I try to think of how a customer feels when they walk up and buy a ticket to one of my shows and then I evolve everything from there. And you're like, wow, he's putting himself in the feet of the customer. Now we know all this today. We do all that, right? But when you walk into the Fillmore there's a reason why there's an apple barrel and all these posters framed because Bill knew that some people are struggle socially and don't come with somebody to the concert and are afraid to talk to people. And I go sometimes and I don't feel like I can talk to people. And he's like, I'll put stuff on the walls in the lobby so people can feel like they're, they're look busy and they can engage with something. And they're not just kind of standing there going like, I don't know who to talk to. He thought of every detail and the Fillmore embodied that experience. So I got to learn from the best promoters in the business who toured Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, who toured Linda Ronstadt, who toured the Stones for the first time, who had the first Led Zeppelin shows in the United States, and they thought of every single thing, like how does the fabric feel on that bench in the lobby? What do you see when you come in? Uh, the sound system needs to be perfect. When you walk in, does the air blow on you really hard, like some of those retail places where you get blown off your feet when you walk in? <laughs> Bill had notes to all that, and, and I actually discovered that. Another whole story, but I reached into my desk one time and the drawer wouldn't close. And these desks have all been there for 40 years. And I'm like, wow, and I stuck my hand in there. I got a nice uh, cut. I'm, you know, like, what is it? That, when you get a cut with rusty metal, you're like, oh. Tetanus. Uh, yeah, like yeah. tetanus shot coming. I was like, but something was blocking it. And when I opened it up, I found an old envelope. And when I opened it, it almost like spit dust out. And I'm like, holy shit, this is like a relic at Bill Graham Presents. And inside were these photographs of Jerry Garcia. And they were all burned around the edges because Bill's office had been firebombed by somebody who protested something Bill did. Um, and in it was these notes written in single spacing like a madman, right? You're just like, who writes in single space? And it's 30 pages, and it was Bill's personal notes on everything that he had seen during this run of 10 Grateful Dead shows at the Warfield wow. Theater. Wow. And you read, and he's like, who's in charge of removing the gum from the water fountain? That needs to be removed every 15 minutes. I can't stand seeing gum in the water fountain. And you're like, this guy's got to be murdered to work for. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's one of those people that's like, wow, that's so brilliant. And you admire it from afar, and you're like, I would never want them as a boss, ever. <laughs> but also, I love their de attention to detail. <laughs> that's right. Everybody had a screaming. I, I got there the year after he died. He... 
He died in a helicopter accident uh, because no one was willing to say no to a very powerful Bill Graham, and it was bad weather. And he said, I don't want to drive in traffic. Uh, it was Huey Lewis. And they said, Bill, the weather's shitty. Like, why don't you just take the limo with us and go back to the Bay Area? Because he was in Concord. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm getting, uh, you know, is it, is it okay to fly? And we went, yes, Bill, it's okay. And nobody says yeah. no to Bill. And uh, that helicopter crashed into a, into a, that happened in 1991. And then 200,000 people came together in Golden Gate Park and celebrated uh, Bill's wow. life. And I got there the year after. So uh, I was there for 12 years and I learned from the best promoters in the business. And I just tried to absorb everything I could. And that's why I look back and go like, what, how did I, you know, that's an, ins- a lot of people probably want it. I didn't even know I wanted a job at Bill Graham Presents. So sometimes you fail forward, you know, just keep going. That propensity to be the right yeah. place at the right time. To be the yeah. right place Absolutely. Right time. I love that you mentioned this very nonlinear path, which it does seem like a lot of people are looking for that. Like, how do I get from point A to point B? And they don't think of the snake road. And as a former person who thought he was going to be a marine biologist in college and then <laughs> dropped out of college and then fell backwards into an internship in an arena. Um, I mean, I know that well, and it's funny because people are like, oh my gosh, so you got started this way and you got started this way. And like, honestly, it's just, sometimes it's dumb luck. Sometimes it's, it's at the end of the day, it is all about like passion and, and putting your heart and what into whatever you're doing. But you know, often it's not a linear path. And if you're expecting that, you're probably going to be disappointed because there's just going to be these bumps in the road and you kind of have to just ride them and see where they take you. So true. So, Joe, you know, you're there and you get hired into that. You're the guy who can't answer the phones. You can't find... And, of course, you end up being the GM, right? So how did you go at the Fillmore from that entry-level position to the GM? What was, what's the success? What did people see in you that allowed you to elevate to that next level throughout the, throughout the building? That's a great question. So I was not the smartest uh, tool in the shed. You know, there were other smarter people. There were people who had far more experience than, than I did. Uh, I was the last of eight kids from a, a large Italian family in upstate New York, and so I kind of knew how to hustle. And so I made up for it by saying, like, if someone wants me to run that message down the hall, I'm going to jog and run that message down the hall. I'm going to do as much as I can in the, in the most energetic, passionate way I can. I think they saw, you know, Joe really wants to be here. I, I was like, you know, if I could be here for the rest of my life, I would just stay at Bill Graham Presents. Of course, it all changed in 1997 when the concert, con- you know, business started to become consolidated into Live Nation and SFX. But um, I asked my boss one day if we could return to doing local bands at the Fillmore for a $10 ticket price. And they were like, no, why would we do that? We'll lose so much money doing that. It's like, <laughs> you can't do that. But I said, well, Bill did it. And like that stops everybody in their tracks, right? Like Bill had this thing at the Winterland where it was like local bands on Tuesday nights. And so they're like, huh. So they were like, find a sponsor. So Levi's is based in San Francisco and they were really quick to it. They're like, we'd love to, uh, you know, put our clothing and our apparel on, you know, on, uh, on the performers and, and have that engagement. And they offered $100,000 for 10 shows. And I started, I was going out to shows all the time. I was getting advice as, 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 a, as a young person in the business, like go to as many shows as you can. And so I started asking people, hey, great, we got a sponsor. We're going to do this at the Fillmore. Uh, it wasn't easy because the booker of the room was like, uh, I don't want you moving in on my territory. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I started asking bands to perform and no one would perform because they were like, uh, you know, now that I think about it, that's a pretty big room, 1,500 capacity. We might only draw two or 300 people. We don't want to look bad. And I'm like, oh, my God. So after three months, no one would play no. the venue. And Levi's was like, we're, look, dude, 
put a show on or we're pulling the yeah, money. Yeah, sure. Right. And so back then you got cassette tapes, which are coming back. You're all probably pleased <laughs> to I just see. heard that. I heard that cassette yeah. tapes are, are... And every day I'd get 15 of them in my mailbox because people were like, oh, he works at, you know, he works for a concert promoter. Local bands giving you their, their EPK, right? Their kit. And someone said, hey, there's a guy downstairs that wants to talk to you. He's got, brought his cassette tape. And I'm like, just tell him to put it in the mailbox. I'm like, no, he's, he's not leaving. So I was like, hmm. Whatever. So I go downstairs and I see this kind of tall, lanky kid, and he kind of looks the part. And I'm like, "Hey, what's going on?" He's like, "Hey, my name's Stephen Jenkins. My band's called Third Eye Blind. Could I play your show that's happening on Tuesday night?" I'm like, "You're on. I have nobody else to play this show. I have no idea what your band is. I have no idea." And he's like, "Yeah, check it out." And that they we did the show. Yeah. Uh, Happy Walters showed up from A and M Records. They signed the band that night. And they sold seven million copies. Wow. Uh, there you go. There that's you go. a story so, right there. It's not, not my doing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ran out of bands. It's just all from an idea you have. One but day. you didn't turn them away. So <laughs> as much as you don't want to take credit for it, you know, you, you had your part. The things you don't do, right? Are yeah, as important yeah, yeah, as yeah. the things that you do. Exactly. So the adventure continues. Talk to us about then, you know, leaving the Fillmore and then going to work at Sony. Yeah, so um, after booking those bands, uh, that that show series was called the Fillmore Sessions, and over time, rinse and repeat. Sometimes there's 400 people there, sometimes there's 600. We started doing these punk rock shows with bike messengers jumping off the boxing rings and pretending like they're pro wrestlers and great bands like the Dwarves and the Uzis and Super Suckers playing on stage. And then uh, we invited an up-and-coming band to play that was from the Bay Area, managed by Bill Graham Presents, Train. They performed, and then you started to see it selling out. And then uh, there was a job to start running the Fillmore, and I did that for a little while, but I, I wanted nothing to change. I wanted it to be 1996 forever. There weren't cell phones yet. There was no such thing as Google Maps. You had to show up. If you wanted to buy a record, you had to mow the lawn, get paid 10 bucks, go to the store, flip through 100 records, rip apart the cellophane, and that creates a closer relationship with the album, right? Now I have every music in the palm of my hand, and I feel uninspired. Why is that? Because I don't have to work for it because I don't, you know, I don't go through all these records. So that was 1996, dot-com happens, and Robert Sellerman steps in and says, I'm going to buy up all the concert promoters around the country. I've got $400 million, and they bought Bill Graham Presents, and they bought Pace, and they bought Cellar Door, and they bought Don Law, and they bought all these promoters up, and then it started to become a corporate, uh, get on conference calls, this company's being run out of Texas or New York or whatever. Right. At first it was cool. It seemed to work out. Robert Silliman wanted this to be a big family. Then he sold the business to Clear Channel, which is an outdoor sign and radio company. They had no idea what to do with $4 billion worth of concert promoter business. I think they turned it into a $1.75 billion business. That didn't go well. And I started to you know, realize that I'm not really running the Fillmore here in San Francisco. I have to call somebody in Texas and ask them if I can fire this person because they were selling comps when they're not supposed to be yeah, as a security right. guard. Oh, you know, so like, I was like, well, maybe my time's done. I want to be a music supervisor. Rewind, turn the record back. Joe doesn't do any research. I'm going to move to Los Angeles and become a music supervisor for television and film because that's the hot job, and I think that could be me. Show up in L.A., take some meetings. They're like, the Fillmore what? Where? Who cares? What? Like, television and film business doesn't give a didn't shit resonate, right? about the live concert business. Oh, yeah. They're like, sounds like I know what the Fillmore is, but... The television industry is gigantic. It's actually bigger than the film business because there are so many channels, so many productions, so many producers. It's a huge business, right? 
And so it didn't mean anything. Uh, but the hot job at that time was, could I be on TV or film as a music supervisor picking the song that you see in that TV? And I thought that running the film war meant that someone would let me do that. And it was another you know, moment of hubris where, no, you have to pay your dues and live in LA. And, and uh, we don't really care that you are friends with Carlos Santana and hang out with Lars <laughs> right. from Metallica. That, that doesn't get my song in that television show. So it was a learning curve. But uh, after four or five years, uh, I got in again as an assistant. So and ba- back to answering phones. Back Here to answering are. phones. <laughs> and that's the learning lesson, right? Is you always, you know, my friend Jeff Wills is head of, of uh, president of comedy at Live Nation. He sells 2 million comedy tickets a year. Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Jamie Foxx, he launched those careers. And, J- and, and, and I said, hey, man, I, I, I've leveled up. Like, I'm, I'm running bummer shit. And he's like, just learn, like, just realize this thing. Every time you get to the next level, you got to prove it all over again. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, there's no way, right? You don't have to keep proving it to you. He's like, Absolutely. So I had to reprove myself that I could hustle. And it was Sony Pictures, Sony TV. And I was just fortunate enough going back to the first theme that you mentioned that that year Sony said, we have a crop of new TV shows and we're really excited about one of them and it's called Breaking Bad. And so I got have to you, work on Breaking Bad. Have you all heard Bad. of that in the crowd? Yeah. <laughs> right it's, place, it's a family show, doing, right? right? Yeah, yeah. In it's propensity a, to... Propensity to be in the right place, show. right time. Yeah. <laughs> so that was... Uh, that was a few years. I learned a lot about music licensing. It's a whole different world than live concerts. And you learn to listen to music differently as a music supervisor for television and film because in the live concert business, you're looking at it going, are they cool? Do they sound good? Can they play live? Can they sell tickets? When you're listening to, to music as a music supervisor, you should have an oceanic universe of music in your mind. The, you know, Alec Baldwin's going to be in a scene in a restaurant. Can you help us with some Chinese restaurant music? And you're like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do some research on that. I'll be right back with you. I don't know that band. Yeah, right. But these music supervisors have this gigantic, and not only do they have ideas for this music, uh, it's not personal. Nobody, the director doesn't care whether I like Mogwai or not, right? The director wants to know if I can make a phone call to the publisher and the record label and get the and, rights and get it done to that right. song and get yeah, it done. Sure. And and can I stand up to a director like uh, not Larry David, but Larry Charles created Seinfeld, got a chance to work with him, and he knew more about music than I did. That's humbling. You're like, oh, this guy's running circles around me. Music, an intense dude. It's an, it's it's intimidating, and it can make a huge difference on those shows, right? You know, I think everyone. Maybe you don't remember the music if it doesn't land well, but if you do, it takes like shows or movies to that stratosphere. It's like it's another actor in the scene. You know, it really sets the tone. So I think it, you know, I'm sure that's part of the challenge of it is it's like choosing that that sweet spot. And when do you need to have a song that, you know, is, is floating in the background? And when do you need to have one that just takes it over and grips the audience and pulls them in? It's a kind of form of alchemy. What I learned over time is they send you the cut for the, for the movie or the TV, and it's, it's devoid of music. And so you're watching it. It's very foreign because you always see polished television and film on, on camera. So you're not used to seeing it that way. But the, the picture is one medium and the music's another medium and when they merge and become one and you watch that movie and you go that is the most brilliant move you know that's the most emotional thing i've ever seen on tv or film in a scene because the music is carrying you they've merged they're like gold like two things have become one substance if you listen to those if you watch that without the music or you listen to the music without the picture 
It's a whole different vibe. So it's one and one ends up making three, and that's that's the magic of, of mu- music in that world. So I did that for a little while, and then I was like, hey, back to live, and I, I took a job in sales for You're a ticketing, ticket ticketing, right? Back to ticketing. Back it's to answering like, phones. No, just that, that's right. <laughs> yes, in a way, back to uh, selling ticket deals. It was a guy who created a ticket platform for electronic dance music. Uh, it was in Los Angeles. He started off with the Excel spreadsheet, and then he created a platform. He called it Flavorous Tickets. Nobody knew the name. His clients were basically Insomniac, Pasquale from Insomniac, Gary Richards, the biggest DJs in LA were using his platform. So while we were there, we were, we were selling, uh, you know, we were, we were finding clients that want to use Electric the ticket Daisy. platform. Yeah. And uh, we went out to Electric Daisy Carnival and we pushed 320,000 people through those gates in a three-day window, 25,000 people an hour using a little strawberry uh, or the Raspberry Pi computer. It's like this big, doesn't have a screen. We strung it up all around the entire speedway in Vegas and, and just scanned these people through with technology that was, was new at the time. So I learned a lot about ticketing and marketing and how ticketing is the first touch with the customer. And if they have a shitty experience with ticketing, they're going to walk up kind of angry at the show. Yeah. And so you, you've already got a liability. So I learned a lot there. So you learned a lot there, and then this took you to New Rising Sun. I was looking in the paper. I'm in L.A. I'm like, you know... Uh, I've been here 10 years. I've met my current wife and we're my, I have two brothers that live up here and a job, uh, opened up to run McCall Hall, which is the home of the opera and the ballet. And it's back to venue management. Didn't have to start at the bottom. <laughs> and, uh, I just wanted to change LA is a very, I, I love LA. It's a very unique, uh, rat race that occurs in LA. There's so many talented people in Los Angeles and there's a lot of business that gets done there. But we were just like, let's give it a shot and see what Seattle's like. And, and I came up, interviewed for the job. And that was the five years where one reel had uh, brought AEG in to help them produce Bumbershoot. So I got to see what was happening at the festival. And I admire AEG for writing a big check and stepping in and producing that festival. They, you know, AEG also connected to Golden Voice. Golden Voice is Paul Tolette, the godfather of all festivals, Coachella, right? Genius. And um, I... I think that they took Bumbershoot in a direction that they thought could uh, revitalize the health of the festival. Ticket prices did rise to, to higher levels than it used to be a free festival back in the 80s, 70s. And Seattle didn't respond to that in the way that they had anticipated. And that's when the window opened for a new proposal. And there you have and it. And here you are. There we go, full <laughs> circle. But you, mentioned, it was, you mentioned your wife. Uh, tell me about what you do away from, away from work. No comment. <laughs> uh, Michelle's fantastic. She, when, uh, she moved to L.A. Um, out of college. She had started working on movies. She always wanted to be in the movie business. And uh, she started out as a PA on Last of the Mohicans and got to see Daniel Day-Lewis running around in a loincloth. And she said, I'm sold. I'm doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so I was like, wow, that's, that's tough to compete with. Uh, don't think that's not in the back of my head for the rest of my, my, rest of my life. Daniel Day is a pretty big hitter, so... Uh, but she rose up through the ranks and went from PA to production manager to co- or to coordinator to production manager, and she started producing commercials and ended up uh, working with the Lifetime Achievement winner Joe Pick. Uh, who, if you go and look at all of his commercials, it's like the history of every commercial you've seen on television. He, this is your brain on drugs was Joe Budweiser Super Bowl. So she produced these 
high profile commercials and worked on some movies and I don't know how I convinced her, total LA girl, like, let's move up to Seattle. She's like, isn't that kind of near Alaska? Like, why would we do that? <laughs> and I'm like, because they have actually water there. <laughs> it's just like, they have blue skies, you know, there's green, yeah. it, it exists. Let's, let's try it out. And We've so seen she it came the last couple here. days, it's been great. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you about before we wrap up here is you would like to say that you, you're not afraid to admit to say, I don't know, when I least want to say it. Talk right. to me about that, because I think that's something that so many of us struggle with. We walk into a room and somebody says, oh, you know about this person, or you know this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, and you're kind of bullshitting your way through it, right? But talk to us about the power of saying, I don't know. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, you're pulling out all my favorite spiritual axioms. Um, I have been uh, practicing Buddhism for 10 years. I sit in meditation each morning. It really helps me if you don't do meditation. A lot of the uh, corporate leaders around the world are taking on meditation now as a great way to carry yourself throughout the day. You don't have to be a Buddhist. But um, when I do the meditation each morning, I realize uh, as I do 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, that when I get really hard news during the day, it used to chemically change my body, right? I'm reacting viscerally to it. And when you react, you're no longer in the flow state. So when you watch Michael Jordan or the Navy SEALs, they're in the flow state. They're not thinking. They're just completely 100% absorbed. Now, I'll probably never get to the flow state, but today when those things hit me, it kind of passes through me like I'm translucent and it's not embodied in me like a pain body or something that just attached to me and it's going to fuck my whole day up. It just kind of washes through me and that's the power of meditation. In those practices, they say don't attach to anything. Don't attach to anything. It's all, it's all impermanent, all of it. So then I was like, I wonder if this works in the boardroom. So I, I run the board meeting at McCall Hall and they're like, Joe, what are we going to do about this giant, you know, blah? and I said, I don't know. And the boardroom goes completely silent. Like, did he just, did he just say that? And I'm That's like, a brilliant idea. Yeah, I don't know. We'll figure it out. I don't know. But I mean, obviously that can backfire. I'm not recommending you all go to your most important uh, situations and tell them you don't know. But I think if you really believe that it's okay, I think the most spiritual thing you can say to someone when you don't have the answer is, I don't know. And that's better than me bullshitting you. And it's better than us pulling our hair out in anxiety. So I think people appreciate it when they when you show up every day, obviously on the flip side, you have to try to be positive. You know, we have a a rule at Bumbershoot where we're like, don't show up and dump the negative on the table. Like, if if you've got a problem and you're trying to get something from here to here and there's not enough time, just like, I I don't know what we're gonna do, but I think it could work if we tried this really crazy idea. Like, great, let's start from there and try to see it work. So I I try to remind myself I don't know every day. I love that. That's great, thank you so much. Uh, we're about ready to wrap things up. I think we, do we have time for one one yeah, question? We can, do, we can do questions. Michael, you have a question, I'm sure, don't you? You got the bumper shirt. Sh- sh- come on up here so you get on the microphone here. This guy wore his, he's the guy who wears the shirt to the show. He wore his bumper shirt. <laughs> bumper shoot, shirt to the beautiful uh, teal color, too. Like, yeah, that's like, a 2012 classic, right? Come on up here. Uh, what's the plans with uh, Mopop? Are you guys going to be involved or any creative collaborations with Mopop from the years that I went, which was kind of like 2010 to 2012? This was uh, the trend then, which was like now you see in every city was silent disco. They turned that Mopop theater into kind of this like larger than life silent disco. And it's just such a cool place with culture and um, music at the center of things. Interested if Mopop's not, maybe not in the plans this year or in the near future. That's it. Uh, they have the Sky Church, right? And the building's beautiful architecturally. 
There are so many venue spaces uh, at Seattle Center. KXP is there. There's opportunities there. Seattle Opera, Ballet, Mopop. We are going to focus this year on making the festival accessible and affordable. $50 ticket for a single day. You don't find major festival at that price uh, anymore. Uh, that's subsidized by the major giving that the Balmer family and Amazon's come in to help make the festival accessible. That's part of our formula. We're going to fo focus on getting five or six stages done right we're going to focus on proliferating visual art and things you've never seen before throughout the campus and get that right, get the ticketing right, uh, get the food and beverage experience right, and then we got to ramp up into other venues and having lot. There's so many ideas. That That's one of the crazy things. With You get hit every other day with like, oh, my God, we've got to do like a cinematic score experience. Let's go do that you know, in this venue, or let's go have a special DJ moment in that. And, and I, th I think the temptation is to overreach. And we probably already yeah. have overreached with Bumbershoot because we have a limited number of people, limited resources, but we hope to grow into, into Mopop and some of the other venues with, we have, we have a shit ton of ideas. We just got to get the basics. The house has to have good bones, Basically. right? You got to, right. you got to build it and build on it. All right. Before we let you go, I want to hit you with our fast five. It's five quick questions. Just looking for your quick Instant response, right? You're very brief instant response. What was your very first concert? I'm not embarrassed to say men at work. Very nice. <laughs> How about your favorite concert, your favorite live act? Almost impossible to answer, but uh, a couple of Radiohead shows were no, uh, certainly nothing short of spiritual experiences, but also a three-night run where I think it was Prince playing until four in the morning, followed by Iggy Pop, who almost ripped the place apart, and then Patti Smith came in the next day and played a set. And we were You'd just be like, amazed at how many, when we asked that question, how many people mentioned Prince. I, I mean, you wouldn't be because show. people are like, oh, it was Prince. He was, you know, was dangling a off a, a skyscraper and played a 70-song set upside down. And <laughs> right. what in the world? <laughs> it's, it's so true. Hey, who's on who's who's on your bumbershoot bucket list? Oh gosh, um, PJ Harvey. Yeah, yeah, that'd be really great. Uh, Kate Bush. Kate Bush. Okay, how do we get Kate Bush? Having a little bit of a resurgence. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just a, a little music bit. supervisors making that happen, right? That's right. right. A Classic example. Exa yeah, right? A great example. Uh, somebody's got a free night in Seattle, maybe after a happy hour wraps up to go out to dinner. What's a, what's a place you'd recommend for a, a great dinner in Seattle? Great dinner. I like stateside a lot. It's like a fusion um, of uh, Eastern uh, fare with, with Western uh, cooking styles. So... That, that works for me. I also like Bounty up in Queen Anne. You know, it's just healthy salads, and you, you, you can have a lunch meeting and not feel like you're rolling out. We've had that. a lot of deep fried these last couple days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could use a good salad. <laughs> good cleansing. Uh, last question. Uh, uh, what's your theme song? So there's, there's the Joe show, and TV cameras follow you around, and it's a story of your life. Uh, what's the song that plays over the opening credits? Silence. Silence. <laughs> Amazingly, we do ask that question to everyone, but it's it uniquely you're uniquely qualified, and yet you flip it on its head. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, no, God, I have nothing more to add. If somebody wants to reach out to you or follow you on social, anything you want to plug, anything you want to throw out there, just bumpershoot.com. Uh, you, your ticket helps support the workforce education program. Watching these sixteen kids, uh, sixteen youths. Uh, step into the learning process is amazing. So you're not just buying a ticket for a transaction, you're helping change somebody's life. I think that's the best uh, way we can sell tickets and, and people can participate in a festival. So uh, we need help. You know, we need people to tweet about it. We uh, 
are trying to grow our social channels. We did not yeah. inherit any social channels. Wow. Like, yeah. It's very complicated, Man. but other people owned the social channels. We yeah. didn't inherit an email database. We've had to grow everything from scratch, and it's been very challenging for the team, but everybody is a seasoned player, and hanging in there, we got 80 days left, so any, any there's a lot of marketing wizards in the room and people with <laughs> big reaches. If you feel like anything about Bumbershoot's mission to, to help... Uh, you know, engage the community and, and help train the next generation of arts and music producers, please give a thumbs up or a, or a call out to bumbershoot.com. It'd be so helpful. Thank you guys. Great Love show. Hey, for, nice round of applause for our us. guest today, Joe Paganelli. And a big thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews. Smash that like button, right, so that it helps other people find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Ruttelberger. And I'm Paul Huber. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Yeah. Adventures in Venue Land is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing Strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.